Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 39, with Doubleday and Cartwright. to episode 39 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to welcome one of the partners of Doubleday and Cartwright. Chris Eisenberg is joining us. Doubleday and Cartwright is an award-winning New York creative studio focused on strategy, animation, art direction, design, and more for businesses and brands born at the intersection of sports and culture. Some of their clients include ESPN, Red Bull, Nike, Mercedes-Benz, and more. The studio also publishes a large format biannual publication dedicated to sports and culture called The Victory Journal, which is a beautiful publication, I might add, as well as Nomos, a heritage-inspired sportswear brand and digital gallery of fine art and sporting ephemera. Welcome to the show, Chris. I appreciate you taking the time to come aboard the podcast and have a conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So I gave a brief introduction to the agency, but I'd like to go a little bit more in depth and kind of let you tell your story and kind of give us a little bit of your background and your eventual path leading up to Doubleday and Cartwright. So uh, I grew up in New York City in the West Village, um, and I was a fairly obsessive sports fan as a child, like in my own kind of peculiar way, uh, which included four straight years of wearing uh, a Yankee uniform every day, um, <laughs> constructing a Yankee stadium to scale, sort of, to, to like my idea of scale out of cardboard, um, making Carl Yastrzemski and Bucky Dent, like kind of clay-fired figurines, uh, collecting baseball cards, reading biographies, uh, you know, looking at Sports Illustrated, um, Sport Magazine, Inside Sports programs. Um, and I guess like, you know, not necessarily knowing it at the time because my family is a little bit more of like a, a writing family, but absorbing a bunch of things about design and illustration and photography along the way. My sporting career uh, was relatively undistinguished. I came in fourth place in New York State in the 94-pound weight class um, for for wrestling um, in, I think, 1988. I only weighed 88 pounds, so I would weigh in with my eye tops on. <laughs> um, I didn't actually grow until I was 17, which kind of damaged both my ability to meet girls um, as I went to an all-boys school and my uh, I, I always feel like if I had grown into my body a little earlier maybe I could have gone farther with baseball which was my main sport but um, sadly my career ended uh, at, after high school I went to I went to Stanford where you know like Sean Green was in my freshman class and signed a multi-million dollar contract like two weeks <laughs> in. My roommate, Matt Marenghi, went to uh, 
went to double A. Um, there were a lot of a lot of big leaguers around Rick Helling, Andrew Lorraine, um, a lot of guys. So um, I was post-college very interested in writing about sports, kind of had this notion of, you know, I wanted to be like Tom Wolf or Gay Talese, like a like kind of a feature, globe-trotting feature sports magazine writer in the 60s, 70s mold. I spent a bunch of years chasing that uh, with 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 some success. I sold my first piece to Sports Illustrated, uh, which was about the Oxford-Cambridge boxing match. And in some ways, I kind of have always been looking for a way to get, kind of get back to that zone because the types of things that I wanted to write about, whether it be sumo wrestling in Japan or bullfighting or, you know, the, the Oxford-Cambridge boxing match or Arturo Gotti, they were really challenging even at that time, uh, both as a freelancer and then I was on staff for a couple of years at, at Details Magazine, um, one year of which it was a really pretty good general interest magazine. They were, they were difficult, like the, you know, the media landscape as I encountered it in its actuality was was different from, from what my gay to leaves driven fantasies were, were like. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people didn't really have the budget or the stomach or the the interest for the kinds of like more obscure international stories that that I really wanted to do. The internet hadn't happened yet, so the idea of like going directly to an audience, or maybe it happened, but you know, the 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 kind of sites that would later emerge like didn't exist yet where you could kind of cut out the middleman. So I spent some years, you know, spent some years in-house, spent some years trying to figure it out, out of house, um, and generally kicking around, having the occasional success, you know, having some really brutal setbacks, like selling a story to Sports Illustrated and having them sit on it for 11 months and then kill it, or selling a story to Vanity Fair and then something similar ran at W and they killed it. Um, you know, these kind of things, which now seem like totally irrelevant to my world where you're just communicating directly with, with, you know, your own audience or you're on assignment from a, from a company, you know, not that it's impossible to get scooped now, but just that's not as big an issue as it, as it used to be. Uh, in any event, I didn't like working inside a magazine didn't like the politics of it so much, didn't like the direction that the one magazine that I worked at details took in terms of migrating more away from being like a real general interest magazine in the mold of the magazines that I loved and grew up with towards being like more of a shopping magazine. And I also constantly like, I always wanted to suggest photographers or talk about illustration and as a assistant editor, that was really not cool. Like no one wanted to hear about my ideas for photo assignment or, or photo selection. So I left and years after that, I started uh, the brand Nomas, um, which kind of was a combination of vintage boxing, like shirt recreations at first bootleg and officially licensed and kind of, uh, you know, found graphics, 
parody graphics. It was it was kind of a it was like a commentary. It was like a sports commentary art history brand delivered primarily through the vehicle of t-shirts and tank tags and then, you know website with description and it was a great thing for me because that middleman that was there for media you know as i was coming to this t-shirt marketplace i could really make something and like bring it down to my friend isa's store or walk it over to union and then it could be on the shelf and people could respond to it with much more immediacy. So even though that's not me running around as like a Shmata dealer didn't totally fit with what my uh, exact idea of what I was gonna do when I grow up, when I grew up was, um, it turned out to be a really important step and, um, and a, like a really important way for me to refine and express my, my point of view about sport and um, a lot of the things that have happened subsequent to that um, really grew out of, you know, what, what happened with Nomas, both, both, you know, on the t-shirt level. And then when, when I started to make content like Doc Ellis, um, and we did this thing called uh, the undercard, which was a, a doc series about local fighters with uh, my friend, Nick Strini. And I would, start also to get agency work as a solo practitioner because I had kind of articulated my my point of view in the marketplace where people inside companies like first Puma, then Nike would would reach out to me because they would be, you know, kind of kindred spirits who were on the inside. Yeah, every everything has kind of grown organically from there. At this point, no loss is a much smaller part of of what we're doing because the agency has 25 people and you know we're publishing victory uh the, the new one's 160 pages start longest ever publishing that twice a year doing a lot of digital publishing so a lot of the kind of storytelling energy um that used to go into into nomas has is has really been subsumed under um double day and cartwright and, and victory so uh, Aaron, was he doing, he was doing Victory Journal, right? Was that his sort of passion side project? Um, we started Victory Journal together, the three oh, of us. Okay. The three of us. So um, I have three partners now, but when we started things up, uh, it was m- me and Aaron and then our third partner, Kimu Meyer. And we, um, he joined a little bit after Aaron and I had worked it worked for a while together before he joined, but the name Double Day and Cartwright dates to us all getting together in 2010. And then uh, Victory Journal was born that summer, um, the, the, the summer of the World Cup. Now, how did how did you guys all end up, I guess specifically you and Aaron, since you sort of were the original founders, how did you guys end up crossing paths? Through a mutual friend of ours, Luke, that we all, we worked we worked together for for three years, um, and Luke had. We just had a bunch of mutual friends in common, you know, introduced by people in in the city. And the first thing I did with Aaron was like some branding and hang, hang tags for Nomas that he he designed. And we're very different people. He definitely is like not. A sports fanatic. I mean, he, he comes from more of a 
you know, he went to design school at the Art Center in California. He's probably more into like, you know, sci-fi fantasy and then like raves growing up and not, you know, he's not growing up as a sports fan at all. But there, there was something about the kind of graphic history of sports and typography and photography where when we got into it, our tastes really aligned in that zone and that kind of became uh, this this kind of shared reference point for how we started to do other sorts of things together. Um, and then Kimu, our third partners, he grew up in Switzerland, uh, but like really consuming heavily um, American sports and music, but you know, from almost like a fantasized outsider's perspective. So he and I have this whole other connection where, um, whereas, whereas Aaron has really like spent most of his life in the agency world, Kimu has spent some time at agencies and then also uh, was the creative director of Zoo York um, for, for many years um, and spent a lot of time in Garmin. And like when he first came over to the States also was sort of like the first flowering of Mitchell and Ness. And, he, he became fascinated by, you know, not only pro sports iconography, but um, American high school graphics and club team graphics, and especially um, vintage applique and chain stitch. And when we first met each other, um, which was just kind of like in McCarran Park, I think, I think he was wearing a Noma shirt and I just like, went up to him and was like, yo, man, I made that. Um, That's awesome. That's serendipitous right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it was a smaller, that, like Williamsburg at that time, which is probably 10 years ago, was a smaller community where those kind of things would happen more often. We just, you know, he, he knew, he had all this information about garments and I, I was really like a person that had ideas, but almost zero practical knowledge about garments, uh, which is probably why Nomas was never like a larger kind of commercial su success than, than it was. Um, Cause you really like to mess with the, the garment trade, you really need to know what's up on a production level. Um, but he started to help me out with some things. You know, I helped him out, wrote an introduction to his book, he's an amazing illustrator as well as a um, creative director and, you know, just general creative force. If you like, you can see his stuff if you look at uh, Grotesquito, um, G-R-O-T-E-S-K-I-T-O on Instagram. He's a great photographer and also like he, he, he does these awesome drawings, um, both kind of like sometimes on a more fine art level, sometimes on more of like a sketch commentary not sketch commentary, like Saturday Night Live, but more like cartoons. So let's let's talk about the name real quick, Double Dan Cartwright. It's a, I think it's a great name for a sports design firm, first of all. But for listeners that might not be baseball fans or maybe even just history nerds, talk about it a little bit and why you guys chose it. Well, one, Aaron and I were coming out of the situation where we had been in a partnership with a third friend and we had named the business uh, – was called Office of Air. So it was like Amaro, Eisenberg, and, and Raymond. Um, and after three years, you know, it, it, it wasn't working out and we wanted 
different things. Um, we we're all still friends, but you know, we at the time it was a little. It's always difficult to split up with, particularly when you have close personal relationships with people. So like, no one could take the name. So basically, we had spent three years like building up this name, and then it wouldn't be fair for anyone to take it. So we kind of had to just like put the horse down. Um, so when we thought about what we should name our uh, next company, it was like, well, we like the idea that it's the names of people, but we don't want it to be us. And we, we, we were sort of talking about that. And Aaron is actually the one who came up with both the name of Doubleday and Cartwright and Victory. And uh, I, he's like a weird savant because I was not even totally sure like where where he even heard of double like, we, we were we were exploring um the early origins of baseball i believe for this project we were doing for nike at the time like kind of getting into the you know knickerbocker rules and how baseball had been founded and i think i was talking to him about you know it was like well we have Abner Doubleday, who's you know who is the putative founder of baseball and kind of got all the press and attention and Alexander Cartwright, who really uh, had much more to do with it, but um, didn't until much later get the credit for it. And we were sort of like, what if the guy who really knew how to publicize himself well got into business with the guy who really knew how to do all the work? Wouldn't they be a powerful team together? Um, but it was more just. Well, it's definitely it, interesting because uh, him not being a sports fan, the fact that he sort of came up with the name, that's. <laughs> That's funny. He will just blurt stuff out. I mean, we're all constantly just writing down things that he says. He's like uh, a special, special animal. So what was it? I mean, like, obviously you were a sports fan growing up. Yeah. Um, and, but what was it specifically about the sports industry? I mean, I mentioned vertical markets a lot on the show, you know, picking a vertical market and sort of going all in in that area. And, and it's just, it's a scary thing for a lot of people to position themselves, I guess, in one industry. And so you sort of have to shy away from others. I'm curious, was it frightening at all for you guys to go in one area of business as far as like saying we're a sports design firm now? Were you doing that before with AIR, the Office of AIR? You know, we still handle clients outside of sports. So we just say it's a, it's a specialty. And it's not something that we drew up in a business plan you know, nor really has anything been. It's just a question of kind of following your passion and seeing where it ends up. So sports was something that was that really like consumed me as a child, kind of in college, post-college, sometimes like I was not as focused on it. And then, you know, when I got back into, or when I started Nomos, it was like, it just kind of came out of me that I, that it was like, man, I could get at some of the other cultural things that I was interested in through sports and just sort of going back to, it was, it was like everything that was important to me at 13 kind of like came back to me at 30 somehow. Um, and then was like really strong in, in, in my point of view and in what I was putting out into the world at that time, like really almost like on an art project level. Um, and doing that just led to other things and other opportunities. So it's not as if I said like, oh, I'm going to do that. And then, you know, 10 years from now, I'll like, I'll be a vertical marketplace for sports. Like, like that's just, 
you know, that, that's not how it happened. At a certain point, we realized like, hey, 75% of our portfolio is in sports. People basically see us as, you know, sport being our primary specialty. It doesn't mean that, you know, one of our biggest successes is working on um, Blueprint Cleanse, which is a juice company. Um, it has zero to do with sports. You know, we worked on Red Bull Music Academy, uh, New York campaign for the last three years, which is this, you know, kind of amazing. They do a big outdoor buy and they're like 30 shows in 30 days and a lot of traditional advertising, illustration, photography, subway takeovers, bus shelters, colossal wall painting. And I think you would still, if you know what our style is, when you look at it, you're definitely like, that's double day car right. And we're using some of the ideas and techniques that we also apply to sports. But it isn't that we're siloed off. Like, you know, if it's not sports, don't call us. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of times you see firms that specialize in sport as sort of kind of sports and entertainment go hand in hand. So it's, it would make sense to be doing like Red Bull music stuff and that type of thing. I guess so. It's just, you know, when you live through struggling to freelance right or, you know, struggling to start a small business and, you know, having an agency in 2008, 2009 recession, it's not like you're so choosy about what you will do. It's, it's more that you are just trying to like make it happen in any way you can. And you're just kind of noticing over time, like, well, that's really where the traction is happening. And that's, and, and part of the reason why it's happening is like, that's where the passion is. So when we spend time working on, on Victory Journal, which at this point is, you know, totally independent publication platform and kind of business in and of itself, but it shows people what we're good at in a way that also brings us business on the agency side. So we, when you invest and show what you're passionate in, it's not surprising that people will hire you for that. Yeah, definitely. And and I want to kind of go down that that rabbit hole, so to speak, a little bit and talk about Victory Journal. Uh, I recently ordered the Victory Backpack package and have been pouring through them. I've sort of, I've heard about, heard about it and had always kind of known about it, but I, I guess I just finally got around to ordering it. I'm, I'm terrible about procrastinating on things like that. But first of all, I love it. So kudos on that. And I love how it's large and almost newspaper-like with huge imagery. Uh, one of, Probably one of my favorite articles that I've read to date is the uh, article on the... Uh, Costa Coast, 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 or how do you say the guy's name? The brothers? Yeah, the Costa Coast brothers. Costa Coast brothers, yeah. And their sports poster design work that I remember from, from my childhood. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that you didn't like magazines. I don't know if it was specific maybe just to the culture or just overall, but, you know, you started this publication. What's it like starting a publication from scratch? And it's almost kind of come full circle. Well, it's hard starting a publication from scratch because the business model is not super clear and it's very difficult to sell publications, especially in America. Um, we were fortunate in our, in our first publication, we were working with Nike and working with our friend, uh, Julian Kahn there, who, who we've been working with nearly, you know, getting, getting on eight, to 10 years. He really helped us, make the first one happen. So getting that level of sponsorship and support, 
out of the gate was tremendously helpful. I had edited, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine, Frank 151. Um, it's like a, it's almost like the opposite of victory. It's like pocket size, perfect bound. And they, they have this thing where basically there's a different editor for every issue. Um, and I did the 24th issue of Frank, the sports issue. And I really, even though it was barely a paid gig, I took it extremely seriously. I took it like this was my chance to almost like do a prototype of the, the magazine that I wanted to see. And this was before I was in business with Aaron and I was constrained by, by Frank's format, uh, which the scale is tiny and the font is tiny. But that had been something that I really felt worked out well. Um, Doc Ellis' story is, is kind of born from there. So anyway, uh, yeah, I did Frank, I edited Frank book 24, um, which had stories about Dominican baseball and this kind of, uh, I worked with uh, Mickey Duje on this comic book, well, sort of like graphic novel treatment of Mike Tyson's early life and with James Lagdon on the illustrated history of drugs and sports. And my dad wrote a piece about the 69 Mets from when he was working for, for Mayor Lindsay and my video game nemesis, uh, Mike Jones, wrote uh, an article about you know, all the games that he's beaten me at over the years. And um, there was this piece about like my collection, my baseball card collection and Ricky Powell's baseball card collection and sort of like this disputation about who's was better. So that happened and, and it worked out quite well. And when that was done, it was kind of like, well, I had this one issue in hand of sort of, you know, not necessarily the format that I wanted uh, because it was so small, but it was like the tone of, of it was kind of there. And then when I got together with Aaron, you know, who's has incredible connections in photography and experience with print and paper, and he occupies this space and has always occupied this space amongst his friends where he's like uh, kind of the guru for emerging photographers. And now some of them, you know, not so emerging as we've collaborated and everyone has, has grown. But, you know, Aaron is the guy who you can go to who will really give you straight talk about your work and help help you understand what you're doing well, what kind of stories you should do. He's an, you know, also an amazing selector of images and layer out of, of, of photos. So it, it sort of combined, like, when victory happened, it, you know, you could see more what my taste would be like alone with Frank. And then with victory, the large format, the kind of like really formal sort of uh, Swiss gridded design. Um, and, uh, you know, just the particular way that Aaron selects photographers and uses photography, like, you know, along with Kimu coming in and putting in some special sauce with different story ideas and, uh, and illustrators and fine artists. It, yeah, it kind of emerged from, from, uh, it, it transformed from, from one thing to another. Well, it's, it definitely sort of takes the path of, of something different than what most traditional sports publications take with there's, there's, I don't believe I've seen a bleed in any of the issues that I've looked at so far sort of kind of, 
stays with the within within the margins there. Uh, but I did notice in uh, let's see what issue is this that I'm looking at the one with like Neymar on the back the Nike FC yeah. So I noticed that you guys had started putting in some of the earlier issues. There's no ads, and then some of the later issues, you've got some ads. So I'm curious, like, is that kind of becoming the business model for the publication? And sort of how do you balance the whole boutique publication with having too many ads? Even the first one had ads. We just had less. I had, you know, the the current one is 160 pages, and we have like we have an ad on the inside cover which I believe we've had um, in all of them. The last two issues, there's been no ad on the back cover. Um, so it's it's kind of, it almost has two covers. Um, this new one we just got in the office today is really, really beautiful, uh, the youth issue. Um, and it's now perfect bound. Um, this is our first one that's perfect bound because we were getting up to a page count where it just made sense. So we've, it's kind of evolved from being newsprint like cold press newsprint that that we printed locally to um more of a hot press that was truer to color printed in canada uh and the quality has risen the price has risen and now now we we now it's perfect bound um ad revenue is an important part of the equation you know to be frank it it's a small it's a small portion of what it really costs us to produce this but it is an extremely important part of it. And I think the way that we, the ads we take, uh, the partners that work with us um, and the, the ads they, they give us or that we make together, I think the right kind of people are interested in, in working with us for the right reasons. I don't think it compromises having a publication to have advertisements because, you know, and in general, I'm really not an absolutist about editorial content because, you know, the old model of church and state, it didn't work for a lot of magazines. It didn't work for me personally. Um, So I'm really more of like, by any means necessary, do what you want to do and make it, you know, as close to the perfect vision of what you want to do as you possibly can, whether that is making an ad for someone, whether it's making your, your magazine. It's obvious that you guys have a strong affinity to personal or side projects. And even, even ones that, you know, I've read some interviews in the past with you guys that may not bring in a whole lot of revenue initially, at least. And much like myself with honestly, this makers of sport podcast makes zero revenue and is uh, a labor of love, so to speak, but it, it definitely influences my sports base design business through strengthening and creating new relationships and even new work in some cases. So I'm curious, uh, you know, to you personally, why are side projects like No Moss and Victory Journal so important? And um, I know that you mentioned they do affect the creative services side of the business. So how, you know, how specifically do they do so in terms of getting clients and that type of thing? You know, most of the client relationships that we have, uh, the you know, the bigger we get and the more we get uh, attention just for, agency work sometimes like we'll get um, agency work off of other agency work but we still have a lot of clients that we work with that you know I originally interacted with because I sold them a t-shirt from Noma so I think you know like I was saying before when you passionately express like your true point of view and you show exactly how you want to do something 
it shows other people how they can use you as a tool if they want to. Because a lot of times it's really, it's really like, well, I like how you did victory. I could see something like that for my brand or, or for this person or project. Um, or, you know, I like, I like how you gave the context behind this graphic. Could you help, you know, could you help provide the context for, for this bottle of juice? You know, it's, it's like, I think you show your skill set in its truest form. Um, and then as it grows, you know, I'm sure it's the same for you. When you have an audience, you start to have an audience of like-minded people, you know, you're, you're expanding your connections. And then increasingly when a lot of the things that we may be making for brands are, are really pieces of content that have to compete with other pieces of content in the marketplace. So when people see that there is an audience for our work and when we, when we have an ability if we make something collaboratively with, with someone else to even provide some additional broadcast um, for whatever that is, or just help make sure it gets seen um, and received the right way at market, that's going to be just a better equation than if you had the same exact skill set, but you didn't have that network or you didn't have that audience. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about side projects is, like you said, you can do whatever you want to do. And uh, in between the interview episodes of this podcast, I do a thing called halftime, which is sort of a play on the whole 20 minute halftime, you know, time frame. And uh, the last one I did was just talking about side projects. And if you want to do a particular type of work, then you have to make that work right? Like you have to do that type of thing, even if it's outside of your day to day. And, and in some cases, like it can, <laughs> studies have shown that it can actually affect mental health. Like you, it, it frees you up, you know, at night and you sort of gives you a bit of like mental healing because there's no constraints, right? Like you're not trying to please anybody. You're doing this basically for yourself. And then hopefully other people have similar tastes and, and then the things take off. So it sounds like that's really where both Victory Journal and No Moss came from. I do want to talk a little bit about music, and and I know you were mentioning you do some stuff for for Red Bull, and and I know that you guys did some of the art directing and and design for some of my favorite hip hop artists, J Cole and Danny Brown. How does the how would you say the music and sports industry intersect as it regards to design and culture? I mean, are there any similarities there? You know, based on your work. That would probably be a better question for Kimu than for me. Um, and, and to be real, in terms of like the J. Cole album and the Danny Brown album, neither of those were projects that I really personally touched. However, like just to speak to J. Cole, um, so Anthony Blasco is one of the photographers that we work with very regularly that's been a, a key contributor to Victory from the second issue. Um, he's a very old friend of Tony's. Um, and when we started, he was still assisting, trying to figure out how to make that leap from assisting to, to being a you know, photographer, just working photographer in his own right. Um, and he was really talented. A lot of his work was very personal. You know, he, he made a book which was about kind of seeing his family in the Midwest. Uh, it's called The Way Things Are. And it, it was just this kind of beautifully photographed, stark, true reality about a family, an imperfect family, kind of struggling in a part of America that's also struggling. And we got an opportunity after the second victory to uh, make a 
a magazine for Nike all about LeBron. Um, and this was in the, the strike year after he had moved, he moved to Miami, they lost the championship. I would say like it was really at the height of the hatred for him. And it was a time where it was really difficult to figure out, I think both for LeBron himself, for the brands that worked with him, like how do you talk about LeBron when the rhetoric was just so overblown, you know, and, and it really was tapping into some kind of strange and ugly undercurrents of American society on a, you know, definitely on a racial level. It was getting weird. It was just like the anger, the sort of punishment was not really fitting the crime um, for someone who basically had just changed their, their workplace. And we were interested in his relationship to Akron, which at that time I didn't really even totally understand as a separate entity from Cleveland before I spent time there. And, and I also didn't understand that when LeBron went to Miami, that went to play in Miami, that his residence was still in Akron and that, you know, that his nexus of personal connections and relationship really still heavily focused in Akron. Um, and that he was a person that uh, really maintained his childhood friends and had an amazing degree of continuity. He was a person that was still beloved in his own community and that did a ton for his own community. And we kind of, you know, we went out to Akron with Tony Blasco and with Nick Strini uh, and with Aaron and myself, uh, Dudley and um, another awesome person works with us in the office and we just kind of we really didn't we got about 30 seconds of direct access to LeBron enough time to take one portrait but we we had a friend uh, who was part of um, you know was a friend of LeBron from high school who introduced us to everyone and we kind of did things like show South Park Rangers, uh, the, the youth football team that he, that he had played on. And we um, shot portraits of his group of high school friends and teammates that appear in, in more than a game, kind of, you know, their own Fab Five. And we heard from his middle school coach about his first dunk. And we uh, assembled objects um, that, that were important to him, that, that his friend, you know, some directly from him, some that his friend Drew had saved that were related, related to him. Basically, I, th I think that we, our style, a lot of times, both for, for victory and in our commercial work, when we've approached athletes, we have been kind of running counter to the trend to show them as superheroes. Um, and we've been very interested in showing them as real people from real places with real origins, um, shooting, shooting people in natural situations um, and making things look, even when, they're, when it's commercial work, really approaching it like reportage. Um, and that's how we approach J. Cole also. And I think one thing that's similar in that zone is that like, both athletes and musicians have exaggerated personas that people are interested in. And then they are also real human beings that um, have quiet moments and have towns where they're from and 
have relationships with their mom and friends and family and, you know, have treasured objects and experiences that, like, don't necessarily, like, fit this mold of, of a superhero. And that's been the space that we've wanted to get into. Um, and, and I think that's that's kind of the, the through line is that, that their, their person is a commodity in the marketplace. And depending on how you talk about that person, you can get a different type of response. Um, and sometimes, you know, many times in, in our developments so far, talking like really directly, candidly, you know, and when I say talking, I also mean like capturing visually directly and candidly versus like doing something that's more high concept or highly produced has just been something that connects to the fans of a musician, something that connects to the fan of an, of, of an athlete where you've, you maybe feel an ability to relate to that star, you know, be the athlete or, or, or she athlete or, or a musician more, more directly about some of the same barriers as when they're like this untouchable superhero. Right. Well, and, and I think that that, for me, that's one of the most beautiful things that, that I'm passionate about in sports is because there are stories and there is culture surrounding it. And, and sometimes even more so, I'm passionate about the stories around things than the sport itself. And I think about the stories like ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries, where you guys have done some animation work for. And, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's, be- it's a beautiful thing. I think that's why a, a lot of people don't do a very good job of telling these stories. They sort of, like you were saying, it's the superhero mentality, like put these guys on this pedestal. Well, they're already on a pedestal and the majority of people already put them on a pedestal. So showing that human element, I would imagine is something that they're responsive to because it's something that they don't get all the time. You know, in the co- I think we've been a part of uh, a wider trend um, and 30 for 30 has been a big and influential part of it, even though our trajectory started before that where now now it's like i think it's a bigger part this more story-based you know real reality-based documentary reportage-based styles definitely becoming more popular you know people are talking about sport and and culture and where they intersect and, and exploring that um in all different kinds of mediums i think more than when we first started but for sure i mean that's that continues to be like what excites us? Well, let's uh, let's kind of do a, a U-turn here and, and talk about teams. Uh, I know you guys did the recent Milwaukee Bucks rebrand, and I've been following your guys' work for a couple of years, actually, and, and was honestly pleasantly surprised to see you all venture into the team branding arena. So this was your first team brand, and uh, a theme that I often discuss on this podcast is how designers that work in sport specifically in branding, there's a certain knowledge that you have to have that many, you know, traditional agencies or anybody outside of sort of this realm don't understand. You know, it's tough for outside design firms to really understand the nomenclature, such as common combination marks, tertiary marks, et cetera, and the types of things that you have to do for a a traditional sports team rebrand. Now, obviously, you guys are passionate about sport and focus on this niche, but I'm curious and want to hear about a project of this magnitude is quite an opportunity to get your feet wet on a team branding project. So how do you guys handle determining things like scope and deliverables and what needs to be done and having not done a team rebrand before? 
especially in the short, un, almost unreasonable time frame that you guys had to do it in when it, as regards to most sports branding projects. Again, this is one that probably would be best answered by my partner, Kimu, who really was the lead designer and whose relationship it, it was that brought us this project. And, and my partner, Steven, was the one who was on, on point as far as like negotiating this, this, the, the scope and um, working out all those good details, those two guys together. So, but I will say you, you kind of are making everything up as you go along, you know, um, in terms of designing teams for, for, for designing four teams, both Kimu and I um, have kind of been dreaming about, both dreaming about that and executing that in our way um, you know, we did a, a rebrand for Seed Academy in Senegal as a pro bono job. Um, it's an amazing basketball um, and educational nonprofit. They needed very similar things to what the Bucks needed in terms of like a new primary mark. You know, they needed a logo type. They needed something that would look good on game jerseys. They needed maybe something different for T-shirts and kind of merchandise. They needed a mark that's going to look good on business cards. So it really, you know, it's an academy, but it's a team. Um, and even, you know, the fun challenge of like, I've played for 14 years on Black Betty Bar League softball team. And like our shirt design was a logo flip of the Almondares from, from, from Cuba, um, you know, kind of in pirates colors. And, and then, like, you know, a lot of work that we would do for Nike or that Kimu might have done at Zoo York or that I would do at Noma sometimes is about dealing with parodying logos or inventing logos, um, almost creating imaginary teams. You know, in addition to that, just our obsession with studying those marks. I don't think we didn't really know necessarily the terminology of like primary, secondary, tertiary until we really got into the process. But in terms of understanding like what a set of marks is for a team and how those marks, you know, are going to be used in different situations and from Kimu especially really understanding like how you make a mark that will translate very well for different types of garment um, applications from the actual jerseys themselves to to t-shirts and like you know what tolerances for embroidery etc it was like you know it might have been our first time but it was like not our first rodeo so to speak like I think we were just quite ready um, based on our experience to enter that world yeah. And, you know, I think that you're, you know, as somebody that's familiar with sports and passionate about sports, you guys obviously were able to put, put some things together with your, your previous talents. Um, had you guys ever created a custom typeface at this point before? We had, um, and, and there's, you know, there's like different types of design nerds in our office. Like I'm more of an idiot savant in that realm. Like I don't have any formal training and I'm not actually a designer, but you know, we've got like your layout type nerds. We've got like the illustration art nerds. I mean, there, there's, there's guys who super geek out on typefaces. There's guys who geek out on video. There's, you know, there, there's guys who geek out on like, how many different ways could you draw a deer 
it's it's not always coming from the same person. Sometimes, uh, you know, in the in the case of of the Bucks, as has been talked about, um, Justin Thomas K, who who worked um, closely with Kimo on that project, is a was a Milwaukee native, which was very important. You know, I think both for actual understanding and just you know for showing the community that uh, there was a community member that was involved in the process. You know, he's like a member of the Herb Lubalin Society. I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing that right, but like his obsession is running more into type. So it's like, you know, he's constantly dying to create a custom typeface. So yes, collective, collectively we, we, we had multiple times yeah. before. Well, I, I often joke on the show that people aren't getting, most of the time, getting tattoos of Tropicana or brand, brands like Tide, but people are very passionate and very vocal about their teams. And even teams that maybe aren't even necessarily their teams, but are in the same leagues. So feedback in this social media world can be quite brutal at times. And I'd imagine this project has received more feedback than any of your other consumer brand projects due to its team-based and almost tribal-like nature. So I'm curious as far as handling feedback, were you guys aware or prepare for just the the split down the middle onslaught of, of vocal <laughs> feedback <laughs> that's going to come at you on something like this? I, th- I mean, I, th- I think that we knew in our hearts that it would be that way, like that, you know, probably no matter what you do, at least 50% of people are going to hate it um, or right. just going to think that it doesn't need a change because team marks part of how they acquire their powers through use and time. And, you know, you can't, you can change a mark for someone, but if they grew up with the, and, and we could say like, Oh, we don't like the purple. We don't like the Christmas era colors. But if you grew up with those colors as your team colors and that as your team, like you have attachment to that, that's, like incredibly right. deep. So um, I think psychologically, like in the back of our minds, we knew, but like, as you say, like we, there are many projects you do where you just like, yeah, you're not, not like half the free world is like giving you a design for <laughs> yeah. on, yeah. on, exactly. on, on Twitter. Um, I think that, uh, well, you know, the Bucks were, they were very kind and they were very smart also in allowing us to tell the story of how we made the marks in such detail, um, which I think a lot of teams would be scared to get into. Um, and I think that was one of the unique things about the Bucks story versus you know some of the other rebrands you saw is all the process materials that came out. And you know we um, were able to work with our our friend Paul Lucas at UniWatch, you know, who's someone that I've been involved with as a friend and collaborator for, you know, going on 10 years. And, you know, so if I could have shared, you know, this was definitely a dream, even though, again, like I'm not the guy that really put pen to paper. Um, it's always been a dream of mine to work directly with the team. And, you know, if anyone could understand the nuances of that and be able to describe it and just really appreciate and be interested in and all of it would be him. Um, and he, you know, just did a tremendous job in coming into our studio and looking at, you know, tons of material and and condensing that down and telling the backstory of, of 
of kind of like how he got the job and how the the mark evolved um, in a way that I think really captured people's imagination and a lot of people keyed off of that story. Um, so uh, yeah, I, well, I definitely want to I want to compliment you guys on that strategic move to publish sketches and reveal some of the process when the unveiling happened because I think so many people that don't understand these types of projects are, are making subjective opinions and they don't get that there are committees and layers of approval and many stakeholders involved on all these types of things. And I thought sp- publishing the sketches was a great move by you guys to, sh- to show that there was a process in what you did. And I think even kudos to the organization for allowing you to not keep that undercover because like you were mentioning, uh, you know, much, much of this business honestly is about navigating those waters. The, the, the committees and all the stakeholders, the approvals and they're involved. That's, that's a lot of the business and being able to talk about how you guys did that and show your process was, I think a good thing for, for you guys. And I would imagine from at least the designers perspectives, maybe designers that subjectively didn't like it because it wasn't maybe their own personal visual aesthetic. You can appreciate it more because you see the process involved. I felt like, and, and we all were, to be honest, you know, we were refreshing on Twitter and we were looking at all the shit. So, like, I can't lie and say that we were, you know, coldly and partially just feeling so confident and, 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 and not feeling every piece of negative feedback um, and, and positive feedback as it came in. But, like, having watched that with the degree of obsessive detail that, that I did, you could definitely see that when people... The more people were exposed to the backstory, the more, even if they didn't like it, they respected the process. Um, and that did make a difference versus right. know, just some other logos um, that came out at a similar time where I think you were just presented with uh, the final um, and were not really understanding that individual or collective group of human beings had worked on it really hard and tried different things. and. That it, that it had been a process. So, and, and the kudos to the Bucks on that is not small because I think, you know, not only sports teams, but all brands, sometimes they don't, you know, it's hard to reveal how the sausage gets made because at the same time, you show people they worked hard on it, you might show something where someone was like, well, why did you pick that one? That one was better, you know, which there yeah. were comments like, like that. And I think that was smart and uh, and brave of them you know for us it was it was really a no-lose situation because we knew how hard we worked on it and we knew you know what the process had been and we knew that um, the more people saw about how we approached it and executed it the more they would appreciate it but I think that that was potentially a you know a trickier decision from from the team side so and I think they, they do deserve a tremendous amount of credit. And I think they were rewarded both in terms of public opinion and in terms of like, I think they just won some news cycles with it because the story had more legs, you know, not that yeah. it was like a, a presidential event or anything, but like in uh, the circle of like low team logo design, there just was like more to talk about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest in today's day and age, sort of the it thing to do, especially in college is to, you know, when somebody gets a new athletic director or any kind of new personnel, the big thing is let's rebrand. 
you know, and, and it's, we see that all the time and Nike's doing a bunch of rebrands and definitely, like you're saying, it gave the story more legs because now, I mean, how many other teams rebranded NBA teams this year? Like four, maybe? I mean, there, yeah. was, there were a lot, you know, so it, it does, it gave your story more legs and now you can go deeper behind it and understand the process. And, and I especially like the, uh, move to put up like a landing page that sort of gives you like a little mini style guide of, of the marks. Uh, so definitely, man, that's, I think that was good. Uh, a, a good move on you guys to publish that, that process. And then also, you know, I think the, uh, one of the big things with sports design, especially sports branding is we all see the logo and it's easy to make that quick judgment. But the reality is you have to, you have to be patient and the design needs to be persistent and, and push through to see how the thing gets activated because we usually, when things get activated on the floor, on the uniforms and however, however the brand is going to be established, that's when people really get, understand it. You know, right now they're just judging a picture on a white background, basically. You know, and it, and it will remain to be seen exactly how much of a part we get to play in all that, you know, to be, to be candid, but I remember when the Nets logo came out, I definitely was like, what the, f-? you know, there were all kinds of people in our office, like, what the, f-? like, this is <laughs> you know, like they should have called us. We should have done this. We would have done so much of a better job. And, you know, and, and over time it's revealed and it just is like simple and clean and it acquired a power over time. And now it's like, you know, the example that I'm sure every, owner uh any sports franchise nba or others looking to that is like well that was a very successful launch they really differentiated themselves in the market they made it you know they made a jump from their from their old identity and like they're like an international kind of team like suddenly um, yeah i agree with that too like that was it was tough when when that came out i remember thinking the same thing like oh this you know this just doesn't really look like what it, it belongs like in this big stack of other logos. But then you look at it and it's like, there's no other team that's only black and white. And then you look at the story and how Jay-Z was involved and all black, everything and that type of th- all of that. It, it makes, it makes sense now, you know, now years out, everything's 2020 in hindsight, obviously. Yeah. So the jury's out. We'll talk again in, in five years and we'll see like how everything gets applied and, um, you know, I think all I can really say is that, like, we really did our best. We stand behind the work. Um, we're happy with how it turned out. The Bucks were a great partner. We're happy with how it rolled out. We're excited for the reveal of the uniforms. We're excited to, like, you know, watch a team that's going to be, like, a strong team next year, too, uh, play in uniforms that we designed for them. I mean, that's going to be pretty, pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Adam, and I got to I got to I got to go. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, real, real quick, how, where can, where can people reach out to you online, Twitter, website, and all that yeah. type of stuff? Uh, victory journal is victoryjournal.com and at victory journal. We're especially active on Instagram, um, and Twitter, doubledaincartwright.com, um, at DNC New York on Twitter. And I'm at Nomas NYC on Twitter. Um, and on the websites, there's, there's, uh, there's contact pages where you can reach out via, via email. Um, 
I'm Christopher Eisenberg on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm like on there. However. All right, man. Well, I appreciate your time and, and enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, uh, I like your style. You're good at, uh, good at what you do here. This was fun, um, and, and I appreciate it. Thanks, man. My next guest is going to be another New Yorker, uh, one of Brooklyn's finest, John Contino. John is a creative director, illustrator, designer, and most notably a hand letterer, now living and working independently in upstate New York for his own company, John Contino Studio. Through his studio, John has produced award-winning work for some of the world's top agencies and brands, including Nike, IBM, Coca-Cola, ESPN the Magazine, and many more. John has also founded his own menswear and accessories company, Contino Brand, and is the co-founder and creative director of CXXVI Clothing Company. Now, I should also note that John is a huge Yankees fan and is passionate about the visual aesthetics of baseball, much like our mutual pal, Todd Radom from episode four. So he'll be coming up on the next interview episode. I want to uh, say a big thanks again to Chris Eisenberg for taking the time uh, today over his lunch. Uh, you can, again, as he mentioned, you can follow their agency on Twitter at DNC New York. A couple of things real quick. If you missed the last halftime episode, I discussed the topic of side projects. Now, we've seen former guests such as Fraser Davidson, Matt Stevens, Darren Crescenzi, Ben Jenkins, Bethany Heck, and today's guest, Chris Eisenberg of Double Dan Cartwright, discuss the importance of side projects in their work and even how some of these side projects can lead to business. And that's at makersofsport.com slash episodes. Lastly, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. If you've gotten value from myself or any of the guests on the show, then please share the podcast, rate the content so others can discover value for themselves as well. As always, any likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you happen to be listening to this are very much appreciated as well. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribble. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.